Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. This episode of Writing Excuses has been brought to you by our listeners, patrons, and friends. If you would like to learn how to support this podcast, visit www.patreon.com slash writing excuses. Season 18, Episode 33. This is Writing Excuses, Deep Dive Prep, the Schlock Mercenary Finale. 15 minutes long. Because you're in a hurry. And we're not that smart. I'm Mary Robinette. I'm Don Juan. I'm Aaron. And I'm on the spot for this episode. And also, I think, for the seven episodes that follow, we are going to talk about... We're going to talk about finishing big things and building big things. And, um, oh boy, Schlock Mercenary ran from uh, June of 2000 to July of 2020, uh, daily webcomic, and wrapping it up was one of the most difficult and one of the most rewarding things I've ever done. And I feel like a discussion of how I did it and why I did the things that I did could lead us into all sorts of interesting and wonderful places with regards to the things that we've worked on, the things that you might be working on, um, things we love, things that maybe weren't done so well. There's so much to cover, so much to cover when we talk about wrapping up big things. Before we dive into the end, I'd love to rewind a little bit and talk about the beginning. So I think to understand how you wrap this up, I would love to understand first, why did you make it a daily webcomic? Like, what were the things that drew you to that <laughs> format? And like, what was, what did that, how did that wire your brain in a certain way to think about how to structure things when you're putting content out on such a regular cadence? The enormous power of the default. When I began writing Schlock Mercenary, um, I imagined it as a newspaper comic. I, I submitted it to a couple of syndicates and was told in both cases, this is not what we're looking for. And I don't blame them. And I'm actually quite happy that it didn't get picked up. But I... Uh, up until that point, I really only imagined a comic strip as being a daily thing in newspaper format. I mean, the default was so powerful that I literally didn't imagine other things. Mm -hmm. Why does Schlock Mercenary look the way it does? Because in 2000... Howard really didn't know very much about what was possible with the web. I mean, you were starting in an era where I think a lot of webcomics were like that, right? They were all coming out in this model of uh, newspaper strips. They all were very episodic, very serialized. And then over time, I think we saw a lot of these like daily gag comics suddenly start to develop meta plot and structure and like these huge events that started overtaking them. 
Was that something you knew that you wanted to do when you started Schlock? Or were you starting with more of a gag of the week structure and then suddenly realized, oh, there's plot here, there's story here, there's world building in a bigger, more complex way? My two biggest influences going in on this were uh, a great big book of collected Buck Rogers comics Mm. I had from the, I want to say, 1940s. Um, might have been the 1930s. They were newspaper comics, um, where it was definitely long form, um, and there was some, you know, Monday reminder of what we were doing, Saturday cliffhanger. Uh, there was some of that going on, but yeah, I got the feeling that back then the newspapers just assumed, no, everybody's on board. They are just picking up this paper, and Buck Rogers is what they're reading. We own this audience. Um, and it was very, very streamlined storytelling. Um, and, uh, Bloom County, which Mm. did, which did gag of the day sorts of things. Um, but they would, they would string together themes. There was one where, uh, during the, uh, Iran-Contra scandal, um, the Oliver North Mm stand-in was an alien puppy dog, that was just big eyes and cute, and he's there on trial, and and no one can prosecute, no one can come down on him because he's a cute puppy. Look at him. Look, oh, look at what his antenna do. And so we get a week of those gags, and then we move on. And I thought, well, I could tell a long-form story that does this thematic sort of thing on a weekly basis, and plot arcs will probably last about a month. Um and I was wrong. Plot arcs, I, I found, lasted about a year to a year and a half. And it wasn't until about two years in that I realized I I had sort of the makings of a mega arc. Mm-hmm. I did not know where it was going to go, but I knew where it was going to start. Uh, it was going to start with some of the injustices that were created by uh, by monopolies and by top-heavy power structures and whatever else. I, because those are great things to make fun of. But the more I made fun of them, the more I thought, man, I want to topple these. What happens mm-hmm. if I topple all of them at once? At what point in the process did you know the end that you were writing towards? Uh, that wasn't until around book 10. That wasn't until around book 10. In and for, book, the, for the listeners who have not experienced it, how many books are there? 20. Um, and yeah, right about the time, uh, right, right around book 10, I thought, yeah, I could finish this in, I could finish this in five more books. I could wrap this up. I could wrap this up in five more books. And then I started, I started noodling. I was just having so much fun with, um, I, I would I would noodle on a thing and realize, no, I haven't finished exploring this. There are more jokes to be told. There's more character development. There's, oh, it's now been another 18 months. I'm on book 12, and I am literally no closer mm-hmm. to the conclusion I've envisioned than I was 18 months ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, right around right around book 10. I think it was book uh, three. Uh, the first book's called The Tub of Happiness. The second book, The Terraport Wars. Uh, Terraport Wars is the one where we start seeing this grand galactic whatever. Um, and then uh, uh, book three was under new management. It, it was book four. 
the blackness between was where I introduced dark matter as something that could have complex structures and and life with desires that conflict with ours, you know, goals that that bring us into conflict. Um, and uh, spoiler alert, everyone, that's the piece, you know, right there, which I think aired in 05, 06. Mm-hmm. Um, that was the piece that ultimately needed to be resolved by book 20. Since you said the word spoiler, I do just want to let new listeners know uh, that when we do these deep dives, um, that we we go full spoiler. Uh, so we encourage you to read the material that has been linked to in the liner notes, uh, because later you're going to get all the spoilers. The good news is, um, even if we spoil the big ending for you, there are so many Beautiful moments. Yeah, I'm blowing my own horn here a little bit. <laughs> but as I reread in preparation for this, I wrote this. Obviously, I know how it goes. I loved rereading it. I just had so much fun with the characters and with the with their individual plot resolutions. Um, and that was something that I learned fairly early on, which is, yeah, you can have a Save the Universe plot but if we don't have characters that we love who have their own desires and their own plot arcs and their own disasters and their own recoveries from those disasters, the end of the universe doesn't really feel like it matters. Mm-hmm. You've mentioned a couple of elements like the characters and all these things that go into it. How, are, how did you sort of decide, you know, day to day you know, when to devote time to the larger arc, when to devote time to an individual character moment or great line. How did you balance that out over the course of, you know, one day going into the next? That feels like the, that feels like the bumblebee and laws of aerodynamics question. Because very often, very often I would stare at what's happening on the page and I would say, I I feel like I planned this. I feel like I did all this on purpose, but I don't know how I'm doing it. Sandra's standing there next to me and saying, yeah, it's the bumblebee in the law of aerodynamics. Law of aerodynamics does not explain how a bumblebee flies. Bumblebee's job, keep flapping. <laughs> and so she would right there when she said, yeah, that's fine, honey. Keep flapping. <laughs> um, and, uh, and since then, I have learned, one, uh, the laws of, uh, of turbulence in gases and liquids very nicely explain how a bumblebee stays aloft. And it amounts to keep flapping. Uh, and two, um, I have become much more conversant with the sorts of tools I was unconsciously using. Mm-hmm. And one of those tools was a prioritization of what is important— what, what is most important to have happen? And for me, the most important, the guiding principle of Schlock Mercenary is there has to be a punchline. People have to be getting a reward for reading the strip today. And so I would often begin with, do I have a structure that is going to have a punchline at the end? Mm-hmm. Um, there's a question that often gets uh, asked, uh, how do you know whose point of view to follow? And the answer is, uh, you follow the character who's in the most pain. 
um, because that's often going to be the most interesting. And for me, it was, uh, yeah, the character who's in the most pain is the most likely to be the one where there's going to be a good joke. But that's also, I'd rephrase the question, who's going to be able to tell the best joke? We should pause for a uh, thing of the week and uh, we'll come back in a moment. Hey, writers, are you thinking about learning a new language? I think exploring the world, experiencing other cultures, and being able to communicate with people outside your everyday experience lets you create richer, better stories. A great way to do that is with Rosetta Stone, a trusted expert for over 30 years with millions of users and 25 languages offered. They use an immersive technique which leads to fast language acquisition. It's an intuitive process that helps you really learn to speak, listen, and most of all, think in the language you're trying to learn. They also feature true accent speech recognition technology that gives you feedback on your pronunciation. It's like having a voice coach in your home. Learn at home or on the go with a desktop and mobile app that let you download and access lessons even when you're offline. And it's an amazing value. A lifetime membership gives you access to all 25 languages, including Spanish, French, Italian, German, Japanese, and, of course, Korean. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Writing Excuses listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Our thing of the week this week, uh, while we talk about very long-running series that have come to a conclusion, is uh, a series of books by James S.A. Corey that is collectively known as The Expanse. Uh, Several of the books were adapted into a TV show as well, but the entire book series runs nine volumes and uh, wrapped up a couple years ago. Um, It covers an enormous amount of territory, both in terms of story, character, and world. It starts very focused in our solar system. It's a big space opera. And then it continues to expand and grow in these leaps and starts that are endlessly fascinating, have endless complications for the characters. It jumps around in time as well as in space. And I personally think that those two authors um, who co-wrote the series stick the landing beautifully. It is worth going through the journey for all nine volumes that does a beautiful job of managing to balance the big ideas, the politics, and the individual character journeys. Um, I adore these books. I'm very biased. I got the opportunity to work on the first couple of them. But uh Watching where they ran with the thing from there all the way to the finish line was a thing of beauty, and I highly recommend everybody check out the Expanse books. 
I would like to return to the question Aaron asked. Um, I have a thought on that, actually. Oh, go ahead. Don't mind me jumping in. Um, And it's more of a compliment than a thought, actually. One of the things that I thought you do beautifully in this is really balance three different toolkits you're using. Mm -hmm. And I could see how you do that in a daily way, right? I was reading these as a big block, not as a daily strip, but you, you have the three tools I'm seeing in your kit here is one, you have the world building, which gives you all this like big idea stuff, right? Whether that's dark matter being sentient, whether that's a civilization structured around this idea, whether it's like these digital heaven spaces that people get teleported into. It, you have all these high concepts that are sort of driving the meta narrative, the thematics. And then you have deep character work and relationship work that is driving the minute to minute plot of the story that keeps things flowing in such interesting ways and interesting dynamics and people are making choices rooted in who they are. But then you have the third tool in your kit, and this is what a lot of people don't have, which is, as you were talking about, the need for the punchline. So on a daily basis, you have a structure of we we need to get to that joke. And so you're able to rely on the motivation of the joke, the guiding rails that you're on because of the character work you've done, and then the overall target, which is these huge intellectual world-building structures. And I think those three things operating in sync, almost in tension with each other a little bit, just, I can see it like laser targeting you towards that finale that you're getting towards. Um, and it was really fun to watch that unfold. Thank you. That's, it It took me a long time to figure out that was kind of how I was doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things that I found out, um, and this is returning to, to Aaron's question of, you know, how did you select which piece you were working on? I realized that uh, the way I had been the way I had been creating individual strips and individual story arcs was not going to work for creating the ending. I needed to outline my way all the way to the very end with some big structures mm-hmm. so that I could start aiming things. Otherwise, otherwise I was going to ramble. Um, and, I mean, the ramble was fun, and we'll talk a little bit about uh, in a future episode um, about that. But when did I, you realize you needed to do those outlines? Um, uh, putting a year on it, that would have been uh, 2015, 2016. I knew that I needed it. Um, and I wanted each of the last books to be about a year of comics. Mm-hmm. And so it was. Uh, so you're like two to late, three volumes. Late 2017. Before. Late 2017 is when I'd. Uh, I, I'd when I was committed, when I actually started mm-hmm. the the last of the three books. And that was the way I structured it was uh, I want to treat the ending, I want to treat the ending as a trilogy. I want the first book of the trilogy to set up the final conflict and to bring all of the characters and, and put them in, get all the pieces on the chessboard and end us in a way, end that book in a way that feels triumphant but also propagates a disaster into the next book. Um, and and that structure from that that structure served me really well. If I'd tried to do it in five books, if I'd tried to do it in one book, I don't think I could have pulled it off. I feel like I hear people a lot coming to this realization who are writing longer works where they're like, I started out and I was just doing a thing and then outlines, you know, came upon me and it turned out I needed them. I'm curious, how did that change? Did it change your process at all? Did it make it 
easier? Was there anything that was more difficult once you realized that you had to do that for the ending? For my own part, and I, I begin with that phrase because I don't want to force discovery writers into the same path that I was in. For my own fart, fart. <laughs> I mean, you were talking about the gas. For my nature. own fart, um, I felt very, it felt very precarious to me. I was very worried that by outlining these things, I was going to break a portion of my process and wasn't going to be able to follow through. Um, fortunately, I was at the time hanging out with some really strong writers of outline and fiction and short form and long form and whatever else. Um, and and I count I count their friendship and their examples and their instruction as critical pieces of getting me past the fear of the precarious and into the the understanding of, uh, Howard, you've got the toolbox. You've figured out that it's turbulence that makes the bumblebee fly. Um, now flap that direction and, and it's going to work. How much did you stick to the outline? Uh, the bigger part of it, the biggest part of the outline, um, I stuck to it at five nines of mm -hmm. accuracy. I knew uh, this book will feature this cast, this book will feature that cast, Last book will have people split up and then come back together. Um, and, uh, and, and so at that level, yeah, very, very accurately. Uh, at a lower level, there was a place in the second book where I realized I had diverged wildly from what I'd originally imagined, but I really loved where it was going and so I sat down and uh, re-outlined things and, uh, and, and was pleased with where that went. Yeah, I've, I've definitely done that, too, where I'm partway through a book and I'm like, oh, I'm going to do a different thing mm -hmm. with this outline. One of the things that I was struck by um, was the difference between the way it reads when you're reading it as a single strip versus the way you're reading it on when you're reading it in graphic novel format. Um, and I wonder, I've heard you talk a little bit about this in the past, about the way you think about it. Um, and I was wondering if you could unpack that for us now, the, the way you're thinking about. Sure. Um, it's, the, the way I think about it is it was a horrible, horrible compromise. And I worry still about people who read it in the long form. And that's because the pacing of reading one strip a week, the pacing of panel, 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 punchline panel um, is very, very, it's like a drumbeat. Mm -hmm. And when you read the whole thing as a graphic novel, um, it's, it's, the, it's the cognitive equivalent of just a constant, pounding that I'll, I'll admit was not necessarily pleasant for me. So the pacing, the pacing here is weird. I keep pausing for punchlines. Why am I doing that? Oh, because that's how this was constructed. 
that's just what it is. So what's interesting for me is that I have a different experience. Um, so when I read it, in, when, I'm, when I'm clicking through and read it, strip, 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 I get the beat, beat, punchline, beat, beat, punchline. But when I am reading it as a, as a full page, as a graphic novel, the, um, the size of the jokes vary. And the other thing that happens is that um, I start to have, I start to carry context with me across the, the things. And one of the things like, that, that is so difficult about humor is that so much of it is contextually based. And when you're writing something where you need to land a punchline, you, you've only got the context for those, those two or three pe- previous panels. But when you're doing it long form, a lot of the you're able to have a lot of the jokes that are landing for me bigger because I've because I'm carrying context through the whole thing than when I'm doing it uh, in an individual beat. And for me, that that was an instructive thing when I'm I'm going back to my own stuff, which is in a completely different form. That. Um, that I can uh, to to think about the way context is carrying across, and and having the 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 jokes that are where the context only needs to be like you know one line before, but then also the ones where there's a payoff that you have been setting up for pages and pages. Yeah, that was always difficult for me because I knew, and on any given day, the way the Schlock Mercenary website was built is when you. When you arrive at the website, the most current strip is there. And so I always wanted the most current strip to give you enough context that when you got to the last panel, there was a reward. Maybe you didn't need the whole joke, but you needed some of it. But if you went back and read more, then obviously there would be more. Well, and that's what I really love about using humor in this way. And the rhythm of that humor being at the end of every strip, you know, and then you have the longer Sunday strips or whatever it is. But that rhythm, because humor is fundamentally, or not maybe fundamentally, but often about changing the context of the information you have, right? Mm-hmm. You're giving information. The punchline is the abrupt recontextualization of the information you have to see it from another angle, which when you're trying to get your reader to absorb an enormous amount of complex world building, whether that's political, scientific, you know, big ideas, whatever it is, is such a useful tool. Mm-hmm. So at the end of every four or five panels, I was getting not just the information that was being given to me in a complex way, but then you would have an opportunity to tell me, here's the important thing you need to take away from this. It was like getting the executive summary at the end of every strip <laughs> in the form of a punchline, which really helped me absorb all the stuff that I was looking at. Because it's it's quite dense, right? By, mm-hmm. by the you know 20 volumes of complex military science fiction world building means there's a lot of information that you need to be having in your brain as context for why is this character making this choice? Why is this civilization invading X, Y, Z? And so the humor in that rhythm of the daily joke, I think, was an enormously beneficial tool for you in being able to deliver that in a way that if you had just done a straight graphic novel, may have been incredibly dense, late Alan Moore style, like, what am I looking at at this point? Um, so I, I think that structure actually was ended up being a really beautiful tool in your kit. Well, thank you. I, uh, I'm, I'm admittedly self-conscious about it. You know, the very first Schlock Mercenary book, Tub of Happiness, uh, the only reason it got printed was that Sandra said, honey, it, people want to give us money for it. We can just put it in print. 
It's like, I can't even look at those strips and lay them out. They're so awful. I want to redraw them. And she said, then don't look at them. I will lay out the book and we will sell it because I, I would like to eat. And, uh, and so there is a huge measure in my heart. There's this huge measure of it is what it is. Compromises were made. Which of the words between schlock and mercenary says that I won't sell out my art in order to feed my family? Um, Howard, if you didn't grow between volume one and volume 20, I think I'd be more concerned than you looking back at volume one and being concerned. Yeah. Um, But uh, but yeah, I I love the perspectives that that y'all are bringing to, you know, to how you're reading it. Um, One of the things that we're going to cover in a later episode is... uh, writing endings and and how f- from about book 10 I was laying the groundwork for what I knew was going to be the resolution to the conflict and and I kept that piece but I ended up being wrong about what the real satisfying piece of the resolution was and that to me feels like a great place to end the episode Maybe oh. we should actually do homework before we end. <laughs> you know what? And let's do let's do some homework about ending things. Uh, you may have seen on YouTube, there's a little series called How It Should Have Ended, where they take a movie and then they give you an ending that actually makes more sense. And the one that leaps to mind immediately is using the eagles to fly the ring to Mordor. Um, take a thing that you love, something that you've really enjoyed, um, and try to write a new ending for it. Um, something maybe that makes more sense to you or that maybe it fits your headcanon better or you would just be happier with, but outline a new ending for somebody else's thing that you love. This has been Writing Excuses. You're out of excuses. Now go write. Do you have a book or a short story that you need help with? We're now offering an interactive tier on Patreon called Office Hours. Once a month, you can join a group of your peers and the hosts of Writing Excuses to ask questions. Writing Excuses has been brought to you by our listeners, patrons, and friends. For this episode, your hosts were Mary Robinette Kowal, Dong Wan Song, Aaron Roberts, and Howard Taylor. This episode was engineered by Marshall Carr Jr., mastered by Alex Jackson, and produced by Emma Reynolds. For more information, visit writingexcuses.com. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.